Welcome to the Aspen UK podcast, where we bring people together to discuss topics that matter. Hello, and what a day. At a time when the world is on tenterhooks, it's good to be talking about a subject that is so pleasing and gives us all immense agency to live our lives better. Welcome to this Aspen UK webinar and podcast on the future of architecture, a subject that is so important to the way that we live and the way we work and how we get the most from all our environments. And perhaps like me, so many of us are more conscious than ever of our work and living spaces since March 2020. The Aspen Institute in the UK has hosted many webinars and podcasts in the last six months, looking at a consequence of this time across a number of important and timely issues. And today I'd love to find out how our panel, how they believe the way we look at buildings and appreciate those buildings has changed and will that different lens endure? I'm Penny Richards, I'm the director of Aspen UK, and we are so glad you could join us all. Thanks to those of you who's joined us live, and thanks to those who've sent questions to, who, because you plan to listen at a later date. Before I introduce you to Amy and her panel of Armstrong, Mark, Maria, and Peter, a quick explanation. Aspen UK is not a think tank. It's the opposite of a club. We think it's hugely important to bring people together who might fundamentally disagree with each other, but who want to debate and confront their own ideas and their values. We are very committed to bringing communities of actively engaged and enlightened leaders, inspiring them to work for the common good. We normally carry out this mission through seminars, conferences and leadership programmes. But now, rather obviously, the large part of our work is virtual. A quick explanation of today's webinar. Amy and her panel are gonna chat for about 30 minutes and then we'll open up the conversation for questions from you. Now to Amy. When I was talking to some of the panelists here on who they thought would be good to lead this conversation, they all said Amy Frearson was the person. So we were delighted when she said yes. She's the editor at large for Design, specializing in architecture and design. In addition to her role at Design, the world's biggest and most influential design website, she also contributes to magazines including Elle Decoration, Grand Designs, Icon and Design Anthology. Amy worked in architectural practice before moving into journalism and after a stint at the Architects Journal, she joined Design, finally becoming its editor. By the way, she's currently collaborating on a book for Reba Publications on the design of co-living and co-working spaces around the world. So she's clearly absolutely the right person to guide us for this hour. And I'm really looking forward to it. Amy, thank you so much. And over to you. Thank you so much, Penny. And um, thank you so much for inviting me to be here today. It's an absolute privilege to be chairing this discussion. Um, I'll get started by introducing our fantastic panel of speakers. We have Mark Dytham, who is a co-founder of Klein Dytham Architecture. Uh, Mark and his partner, Astrid Klein, established Klein Dytham in Tokyo in 1992. Um, they work across architecture, interiors, furniture, installations, and events. Um, they're a multilingual office, and they've got a whole great sort of raster of uh, fantastic clients and projects. Um, and um, also, Mark and Astrid are behind Pecha Kutcher, which I'm sure most people will be familiar with, this fantastic uh, event format that makes sure that, 
I don't know, the event is uh, as engaging as possible. <laughs> Basically, we all know that uh, architects like to talk a lot and uh, this, this event has allowed that to be much more interesting. Um, we have Peter Exley, uh, who is the, um, he is the president-elect of the American Institute of Architects. He is an architect and co-founder of Architecture for Fun, a studio based in Chicago. Um, and he's also a professor at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. So he has three incredibly important roles in the industry. Um, we have Maria Smith. Um, Maria is Director of Sustainability and Physics at Borough Happold. She is a woman of many talents. She is an award-winning architect. She is an engineer. She's a writer and she's a curator. Um, work, so she's working across disciplines to bring the built environment in line with planetary limits. Um, she's a counselor of the Royal Institute of British Architects, a trustee of the Architecture Foundation, and she's on the steering committee for Architects Declare, which is um, an incredibly important kind of collective um, thinking about the relationship between architecture and the environment. Um, and most recently, she was chief curator of the Oslo Architecture Triennale, Enough the Degrowth, uh, Enough the Architecture of Degrowth. Apologies. And then finally, we have Armstrong Jacobi, uh, who is senior partner, senior partner at Foston Partners, um, where he's been for many years. Um, his, some of his incredible projects he's worked on include the redevelopment of the Murray in central Hong Kong. Um, currently, he's involved in the design of the Oceanwide Centre in San Francisco. And uh, he was in charge of the master planning of the city centre in Washington, DC, um, a huge 12 acre site um, so an, quite, a, quite an ambitious project. Um, so this is all of our speakers. Um, so before we get started, I just kind of want to sort of, I guess, sort of trying to get my head around this incredible, <laughs> this, this huge topic, uh, the future of architecture. Um, I mean, buildings are the sort of the fabric of our towns and cities. The way that they are planned, designed and constructed has massive implications for how we all live our lives. Right now, our buildings are being shaped by all kinds of global influences, uh, concern for the environment, political polarization, the emergence of new technologies, rapid social change, and of course, not forgetting the pandemic. Um, but I think it's maybe possible that through intelligent design, buildings, our buildings can be the instigators for positive change. Um, so uh, my first question, which I'm going to direct at Peter, um, I think as it's sort of today being the, um, the day where we're still sort of waiting to find out the result of the American election, presidential election, um, it makes sense to sort of talk about the uh, influence that politics has on architecture and the future of architecture. And Peter, as the incoming president of the American Institute of Architects, I'd be keen to hear your thoughts on the impact that the kind of growing polarization of politics has on architecture and on our, on our buildings. Yeah, um, thanks so much for that question. You know, if you're watching this live, it's obviously spectacularly topical. Um, but I think as, as the conversation develops today, I think what you're going to, to discover is that what we do as architects really transcends politics. What's, what's really critical for, for us all to understand is that um, you know, the architect's natural habitat is at the community level and it's the difference that we make in our communities, not only through our built work, but through our involvement in the political process as citizen architects. 
So it, it's, it's really critical for us, I guess, to be influential in building that future, designing that future, but also to be having a voice in, in what that future is all about. So um, I'm all for advocacy. And, and I think that the things that we'll talk about and you, you just introduced, they're all bipartisan issues. We're all interested in healthier, more resilient communities. And um, sort of, how does this situation, uh, no, sorry, <laughs> um, within this kind of, um, what would you say are the main challenges that architects face? Um, two things, really. I, I think, you know, strategically, we, we've really got to emphasize action on the climate crisis in our work. And we need to also attract the brightest and best, smartest young people into the profession. So um, I, I think the major challenge that faces us um, is the catalyzation of equity in our profession. And that's equity ac across gender, across race. Uh, in, in every respect, we've really got to be fostering diversity and inclusion in the profession mm -hmm. um, of, of architecture and, and ensure that the smartest people from every community are participating in, in, uh, in our profession and impacting their own communities and society at large. Mm. And it's some, that's something that we can all do a better job with. How do you think we go about doing that? Well, I, there's a multitude of things. I, I, I have a great belief and through my own practice, we're heavily involved in, in K through 12 education. So I think sort of chipping away at the quality of the environments that we, that we create in K through 12 so that um, kids are growing up in superb environments that are, are inspirational to them, that they're empowered by this, that they step into a school on their first day and they in, in instinctively understand, hey, this place is for me. This has been created for me. This is amazing. This is like nothing I've, I've seen before. And something that can foster a lifelong love of learning with them. We've got to work really hard to um, get architecture and, and design as part of the core curriculum in our schools. So that design is not a luxury or an exception to the rule. Design is part of everything. And obviously you've got you know, five evangelists for that on this panel here. And then um, I, I think once the idea of design and architecture is in the, the lexicon and an everyday experience of, of the world's youth, then they're going to, to want to be the architects and designers and influencers of the future. Um, so I think that there's a lot to do with demystifying that. And we, we could go down, you know, the sort of rabbit holes also of making an architectural education and the commitment that, that we've all made to, to have a, a five or six or seven year long education. Uh, we need to make that affordable for everybody so that there are no barriers to it. But that's a profound challenge in the United States. Uh, you know, the accessibility to education around the world it, it is, is different, but um, the trend seems to be towards um, you know, a, a play-to-pay situation. And uh, we all really need to um, try, try and remove that barrier and invest in those people that want to be architects mm -hmm. and, uh, mm -hmm. and really support them.
whoever they are. And, and that is also a part of this, uh, this barrier to diversity and inclusion. Mm. And Peter, you've worked a lot with communities um, in your architectural project and with children in particular. Um, do you see a sort of a big desire among people to kind of be more involved in how their buildings are designed, how their neighbourhoods are designed? Like, do you sort of see a lot of hunger there or interest from people in ways that they can take a sort of a role in this? Yeah, I, I'm continually delighted when we meet with our clients and their stakeholder groups, you know, working in schools or with grassroots organizations in large and small communities. Um, you know, speaking back to this idea about an awareness of what design is in your education, people are uh, just delighted when you ask them what they want, when you're getting that feedback from them in the design process. I think it's something that we can all heighten in our own practices. Um, I sort of feel it's second nature to, to me in, in my practice. We've been doing that for 25 years. I suspect that there are you know, three other panelists who will um, you know, make, make the same commitment. We're all intense and highly involved participatory practices. That, that needs to be a habitual part of what we do. And by getting the involvement and participation of the general public in the, in the buildings that um, build the fabric of, of their communities, um, they're naturally then invested in it. They understand the why and, and, the, and the wherefore of why certain decisions were made. Why something is this color? Why we arranged it that way? Why there's a design feature um, that may indeed ultimately uh, have, have come from the germ of an idea that they had in a meeting with an architect. That's wonderfully empowering. And um, mm. you know, we, we, we don't think twice about having a, com having a candid conversation about the law or medicine with other professionals. We need to nurture that same thing with our design professionals. Mm, and mm. Uh, we, architects can do a better job with that. And uh, I, I think that's the, that, that's, that's the general aspiration, I think, of the profession at this moment. And, mm -hmm. and with the enormous, um, so it, um, the enormous enthusiasm of the emerging generation of, of young professionals, they are so socially minded, they're so committed to justice. Um, I, I, I think that is really, we're, we're on the threshold of a real sea change in our profession and engaging every, every community in, in the work that um, will, will build their future communities. Mm -hmm. And I think um, kind of, yeah, coming onto this sort of, um, this topic of equality and kind of having a more representative voice uh, in architecture, I, um, I'd like to hear thoughts of Armstrong, um, who has been a, a, also quite a big champion for um, equality in architecture. Um, and especially in sort of the context of recent years, you know, we sort of, you know, we were, a, a couple of years back, we sort of saw the Me Too movement. Also this past year, the Black Lives Matter movement, like they're sort of, they've really kind of shone a light on the fact that architecture in particular is very, as initially dominated by white men. And um, there's a lot to be done in terms of making architecture more accessible to all. And Armstrong, I'd love if you could kind of give me your thoughts on how that, how that can be possible in the future. Yeah, thanks. Um, I mean, um, one of the things that has happened during this very fast moving 
um, quite sad event, which is the pandemic we're going through. One of the things I think that has happened is that we've all become much more aware of our humanity and um, much more than I think we've ever been. There's, we're more keenly aware of how the world is not perhaps as equitable as it could be. And many events have actually come to pass to show and demonstrate that. And in our day-to-day -day lives as well, we've been able to see that. And what's interesting about architecture and what we do is that we, prim we primarily design for people. So wherever we do we have people at its heart, at its base. And then when you begin to think of that and begin to look at that really acutely and begin to sort of look at perhaps, I use the word, I think, how, you know, I use the word accessibility, I suppose, so I suppose in design terms, how do you really put people at the center of what you do? Not just design terms, for example, not just the design itself, but um, the designers as well, perhaps, and where they might come from. I think um, Peter just alluded to that as well. You know, people who are designing you need to come from all walks of life as well. They have to have to represent everybody. Um, and also the buildings that we produce, do they actually, um, are they welcoming? Are they buildings that um, allow other people, for, for example, to be inspired by, you know, buildings could become barriers in a way to, in that, uh, in that respect. And then if I took it a little bit back into, I, I always go back to the UN with its Sustainable Development Goals Agenda, which has sustainability also latched onto that and disability as well. But if you then put that together and then put it into the forefront of what we're, what we're thinking or talking about, um, and you then say that as an architect, people are absolutely at the center, then I think everything begins to fall into place in a way. And I actually believe that it's a difficult task to, as an architect to achieve because you, it, will, it will, in a positive sense, I think, um, and bring to the fore all the things that many of us have been championing over the years. But I think this, this period allows us now to reflect on it and bring all of these ideas to the fore. Mm. And I mean, when we sort of talk about accessibility, I mean, I think sort of 10 years ago, um, the word accessibility in architecture would very much be interpreted as thinking about people with limited means, people with disabilities, you know, thinking about staircases, entrances, things like that. But now we're sort of understanding accessibility to mean people of different backgrounds, races, genders. It's not necessarily always clear how a building might be able to be open to everyone in, in that line of thinking. Maybe you can tell me a little bit more about you know, how a building is open to people of different genders of different races. That's, that's a very interesting question. So that's a very interesting question. So for example, if you designed a building with them, just gonna put it out there with an amazing staircase. Um, the staircase, as we all know, will not be accessible to everyone. So in a way, and if the, if the staircase is just as amazing, then one will expect that other parts of movement through the building should be just as amazing as well. And if you put your mind into that, that means you're now beginning to think about different types of people at the same time. So when you then begin to think about architecture and buildings, if you have in your, in your mind as well, this idea that they're gonna be different people using the buildings, a child and somebody who might be feel threatened by um, the kinds of people that might be there, what kind of spaces do you create? Is it, is, are the spaces democratic enough? Are they welcoming for all? You can begin to, once you put your mind into this idea that you're thinking about different kinds of people all the time, um, you begin to think about every action you do just as carefully. And quite frankly, when, you, when you're also looking at architectural education as well, you then begin to appreciate that you perhaps need 
to be able to cover all those aspects of design that we're talking about, catering for all people, you probably need all people also on the design table, designing for all people as well. So all of those things to work together to begin to create, I think, um, a future of um, quite inclusive and uh, accessible architecture in a, in a bigger sense, but also in a real sense in how it works as well. So yes, when we think about our buildings and when we're designing, they should welcome all. Mm. Can you give me any particular examples from, from your practice, from Foster and Partners, where that's, you know, thinking about accessibility has been such a sort of huge factor and how that's influenced yeah. or shaped the design? Yes. Um, when I was very young, when just my final year of architectural college, I, my tutors at the time told me to, um, told me to, I should, my project sort of made them, made me, made them think about me going to visit the Sainsbury Center of Visual Arts, which is one of Norman Foster's buildings. And at the time, you know, um, the, the most famous Norman Foster building was the Hong Kong Shanghai Bank, which was in Hong Kong, which I was not going to be able to go visit anyway. So I thought I'll go see this building, which was in Norwich. And I went there, I was very young. Uh, I, was, I was a teenager. Really. I was not just, I was in my 20s. And I went in there and it was the first, I mean, museums can be quite, can, can be quite barriers to someone like me, for example. So I never found many museums welcoming, you know, but this was a museum which was set in a campus. It was on one level. It had, it displayed art from all over the world. It had a cafeteria that was very open. It had university students mingling around. It was set in a, it was a very democratic space to me. And the other thing that struck me as well is that the building was quite, naked in a way, I could see how it worked. I could see how it was made. It was the first time that I felt that architecture spoke to me, even though I was studying to be an architect. It was the first building that I suddenly thought, now here's an architecture that represents in a democratic way, everybody. And it's meant to be an art gallery and it looks nothing like any art gallery I'd seen. So that really spurred me on. I mean, I can see how I could, one could design a building of similar of a similar ilk and, it, and not have that same experience. So that building for me really did represent um, that, um, although it was built so many years ago, it did represent um, to me that idea about an architecture that embraces all. And just a couple of weeks ago, I was there um, again, having not been there for a while. And one of the things that struck me was that it had what I just mentioned earlier on. I walked in and it was COVID queues, and not queues, but you know, lines and everything. An elderly couple in front of me walked in. There was a wonderful platform that took you to the galleries. And there's a wonderful staircase that took you down as well. And we all, we both just went down to the same galleries without any need for any signage, completely welcoming in this wonderful space. And I, and I think that, that concept of designing in such a way that you're really thinking about designing for all with human beings at their heart is quite important. And then, like you said, making sure that those that are designing them also come from all um, walks of life. So things, you know, we can all benefit from it. I think I always use the analogy in medicine, for example, you know, the greatest heart surgeon is, you know, it's like Dr. Yakub, for example, who's his namesake. He's one of the greatest um, heart surgeons. He's Egyptian and he's done wonderful things for, for, for medicine. So in that respect, you know, by opening it up to a wider society, wonderful things will come out of that as well, of surely. As, uh, as life moves on. So all positive, I think, all coming from this really fast moving uh, event, but nevertheless, I think some really wonderful long-term effects that are gonna make, um, gonna make architecture a lot more interesting and more accessible and more, um, and more with more people at its heart, I suppose, uh, 
Yeah. And, and sort of, you know, we're sort of talking about uh, how we can make architecture more socially sustainable, but it, I feel like we maybe also need to be thinking about how we can make our architecture more environmentally sustainable. Um, we know that, and I've got some stats that I'm going to pull up for you here, which I feel like I'm kind of very aware of, but maybe not, not all of our audience are, which is buildings are the single most significant contributor of CO2 emissions on the planet. Construction accounts for 39% of global emissions. Um, but in addition to that, the operation of our buildings, you know, radiators, lighting, air conditioning account for 28%. So buildings are having a huge impact on our, on, on our planet. Um, so I'm going to sort of ask Maria to, uh, to sort of chime in on this one. Um, what do you think, how much, what does architecture need to do in order to be environmentally sustainable as well as socially sustainable? Yeah, thanks for the question. I mean, firstly, I would say, I think it's, these things are completely connected um, and absolutely not competing interests. It's really important that we look at how we create kind of holistically just environments, both built and natural, that, you know, place uh, creating, yeah, like wonderful habitats for humans and non-humans alike. You know, this is, this, this is all very, very, very connected. Um, and the built environment as it stands, um, buildings and construction are a huge, 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 huge um, emitter of uh, greenhouse gases, material uses, the material footprint is sort of enormous. The way that the industry is set up to kind of extract more materials from the earth, um, process those materials, build buildings that um, don't necessarily get used for as long as they could be, that are very, very difficult to repair, so then kind of end up being taken down um, and kind of scrapped and new buildings are put up because they're going to be sort of create more profit in those areas. You know, the, the whole system around architecture is, is really problematic. And there's this huge kind of groundswell and new awareness around that that's happened over the last couple of years that is really exciting and really like, I think you know it's a it's a really exciting time to be an architect, um, and as you know, Peter was talking about the the younger um, generation coming up. Um, I'm like hopefully not too far distance from, but you know, <laughs> but you know the age we were when we first met Amy. Um, but um, it's like it's the, it's this paradigm shift that's happening now that we're changing the way that we're thinking about what we do and our role. And there's a new awareness of, you know, the fact that architecture is complicit in a lot of these kind of big, big systems that are really damaging. Um, and we're changing the way that we're thinking about that all the time. And, you know, just to give one example of something that I think is really exciting, which is this concept of embodied carbon. So you mentioned kind of radiators and air conditioners and things like that, the, the operational kind of energy use and direct kind of fossil fuel use and things like that in running buildings is huge. But the concept of embodied carbon is the carbon or greenhouse gas emissions that are emitted in the in the course of creating the materials that go into making the building. So before the building is even open, you know, the kind of um, extracting the stone from the earth and then grinding that up in order to create contact um, uh, concrete um, sort of creating steel and so on. All of those processes that go into making a new building or sort of refurbishing existing buildings that all emits carbon. And the brilliant thing about embodied carbon, which we're starting to now try to calculate for all of our projects, like as an industry, lots and lots of people are talking about it, is that it takes into account those processes that happen before that we are 
as sort of people who are designing and specifying materials and fit, deciding which materials to put where and how much of them and so on, which is obviously all part of our role as architects and engineers. Um, we're recognizing that we have responsibility for the, those emissions that happen. And this is a really like important shift in how we think about our responsibility because we can, we can, we're doing that for carbon now, but we could do that for so many more things. We could think about, for example, embodied noise. So like, okay, maybe the way that we've designed our um, building means that there's less noise on site, but that could mean that other products are being used that actually cause a huge amount of noise pollution to some other community somewhere far away, creating a product that we're being used, that we're using or like, embodied kind of um, social benefits so say that you know we could make a decision on our site that actually makes a really big difference to the people's lives who are creating another product that's being used and imported into the building so I think this shift to first thinking about embodied carbon and now sort of starting to think about other like embodied biodiversity you know like all of these things that we need to start recognizing and are starting to recognize are we taking our responsibility for is really changing the way that we think about the impact of our designs and changing our like a very idea of what is beautiful and what is really sort of desirable within architecture because all of these other factors, these kind of externalities are starting to be considered. And it's, yeah, yeah it's a really exciting time. And sort of thinking about this idea of architecture and it's for a kind of relationship to, like you say, sort of circular economy thinking, um, do you think, I mean, does that mean radical changes for architecture? Do you think, does that mean, you know, the architecture of the future will be more about renovation as opposed to about new buildings? Does it mean the end of the skyscraper perhaps? Yeah, so, I mean, I think it does mean, it means a radical change in our jobs day to day in a lot of ways, because our role is, our, our design process is no longer, okay, I am a genius and I will do a scribble and then I will find all of the resources that I need in order to make my scribble come to life. It's not like that anymore. It's much more about like, okay, what have we got? We've got that beam. We've got that building over there that's kind of okay, but we need to make a few modifications to it. We've got this green space that's really important to that school. That, you know, It's all about figuring out what we've got and how we can reconfigure that, all of those resources with the kind of least amount of energy, the least amount of carbon and the least amount of kind of additional extraction in order to make those things work for the the humans and non-humans to create those like healthy habitats and so it's a it's a really different it's a much more humble it's a much more collaborative process and we're starting to see that shift to that but it's not that kind of hero genius architect anymore and it's much more somebody that is yeah working with everybody and like Armstrong is saying it's so important that those processes can include all kinds of different people and all kinds of different minds and spirits um, in order to make those decisions collectively and collaboratively so that they are yeah, representative of the communities that they serve. I think that's really interesting. And I, before we kind of, I'd love to know if any of the other speakers kind of would like to add anything on top of that or sort of uh, respond to that in any way. I, mean, I, I love the idea of embodied carbon and this, I love this idea that you, you treat the materials we use and all the means we use as a precious commodity, because quite mm -hmm. frankly, it is precious currently and if it is precious then we treat them really really carefully I think um, what what you heard from Maria there was really really good because by treating every material once again really carefully it means that we do have um, a responsibility as designers to be able to do a lot more with a lot less and we know we have the ability to do that and I suppose uh, moving forward um, it would be great if we embrace it in its entirety 
and strive to do the most we can possibly do with the least we can. It doesn't prevent it from being beautiful in any way. So I think that was very good what I had done. No, and that's really important that it doesn't prevent things from being beautiful. It's yeah. it maybe it slightly changes what we find beautiful. And you think about like, for example, like really beautiful vintage outfits or patchwork quilts or like, you know, things that kind of get worked into more of what I like, really loved teddy bear, right? Like all of these things that have had a life and are precious in that way, you know, like heirloom jewelry, <laughs> things like there's so many different examples of yeah, stuff that we find Japan, beautiful because it's got that life and that wear and that pattern. But yeah, yeah. In Japan, there's, this, there's, more in Japan, there's this fantastic notion of kintsugi. So if you if you break a bowl, you'll repair it with um, molten gold. And so it becomes more valuable and more interesting than the actual original piece. And so that notion of recycling or recycling up is really interesting. So it's actually, it's got a positive um, effect if you actually re, 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 um, re, reuse something. That's been happening in Japan for a very long time. And actually, now we come to you a bit, Mark. I, I, I'm keen to know, um, for someone who's based in Japan and um, has been sort of a bit more ahead of uh, the pandemic than, than us here in the West, and also sort of, you know, has more of experience of the pandemic also from sort of SARS being such a more of a big deal in Asia. I, I'm kind of interested to hear how you think the pandemic is... Um, affecting architecture and these themes that we've been talking about like you know it, will our responses to to covid be at odds with with sort of dealing with sustainability and sort of environmental sustainability and social sustainability do they go hand in hand how do these things work together or will will covid affect architecture at all Sure. Well, first of all, I just want to say that it's been super interesting, um, us being all us spread around the world, people in Chicago, you guys in London, myself in Japan here at 2.30am in, in, in the morning, that all the conversations really resonate with us. And or I'm sure they resonate with, ev with everybody, although we're not in the same place, all of these issues, whether it's education that Peter's been talking about, um, whether it's this notion of, 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 of buildings for all that Jakub was uh, talking about um, and um, this notion of embodied carbon and, and, and doing less uh, or doing more with less are really important things. And, and I'm sure as people says, they, they re re resonate with all of us in our practices. So getting back to the pandemic, yeah. Um, we've seen it in a very positive way. And I think architects are very good at that with all these, all these issues and things we have to balance, whether, whether, it's, whether it's a planning restraint. The worst thing an architect has is a blank sheet of paper. All of the, uh, you know, the requirements from the brief, the requirements from the local council, um, the, the, the budget restraints are all things which make a building in, interesting. And I think the pandemic, too, we've taken that on in a positive way. And I think that it, it gives us a chance, obviously, to pause and think about things. Uh, but it's also um, a chance to push things forward. We've always had um, Zoom or go to meeting, all these things that we kind of used, but we didn't really use. And now I think we've had about seven meetings in our office since March. And so the amount of carbon that we're not using by traveling to meetings or traveling internationally, I travel once a month overseas. That meant I was using a ton of fuel. It takes thousand liters to get me to the UK, you know, and back or 2000 to get us back, you know, an aircraft and an, an Airbus holds 304, 340 tons 
of fuel, you know. So I'm so sorry. It's a thousand. It's a hundred tons of fuel. Um, the whole the whole uh, plane is uh, three hundred tons. The fuel is a hundred tons. The airframe is a hundred tons, and the people in the luggage are a hundred tons. So so every time I went to the UK, we'd use use half a ton, half a ton coming back. So the amount of carbon that I'm I'm, I'm not using is really good because of the pandemic. And I think we're seeing people uh, work in a different way. Even here in Japan, people are spending more time at home. The commute is less and companies are being very flexible uh, about working at, at, at home. And so we're seeing people actually decentralize. Instead of coming into the city, people are staying at home. Um, we're working on, we're working with an office client before the pandemic. We were looking at three or four set large set central share offices similar to WeWork. Now we're looking at a hundred offices for them around the perimeter of the city. And people will be using those are the hubs and not coming into town. And those hubs are close to where they live. So there's a really major shift. And I think that uh, is a really interesting point, how it relates uh, to sustainability, how it uh, relates to, um, how you live and work, your your well your well being, um, being able to spend more time with your family, being able to spend time um, in a much more interesting environment, I think are all key key things. So, we see the pandemic as a major uh, major plus. Mm. And um, thinking about the sort of idea of kind of how you know the pandemic has been such an incredible kind of instigator of us adopting new technologies, or not new technologies, but technologies that exist already we just weren't using them. Um, I'm going to actually pick up a question from, from our, from our Q and a, from one of our uh, listeners, watchers, um, who's asked how, how has virtual and augmented reality changed the field of architecture, which I think seems very relevant here when we're thinking about this idea of, you know, sort of decentralization, people sort of staying more in their local areas. Um, well, I think this notion you know. of hybrid is a really interesting word. Um, you know, I'm one of the founders of uh, Design Art in Tokyo, which is like Design Week, it's our fourth year. And we went ahead with the festival and it was a physical and digital fest festival. Um, we had uh, 77 locations, 150 exhibitors. And the festival has always been not put, we, we don't have a big tent like Earl's Court or a big venue like Earl's Court. We spread it across the city. And we've been doing that for four years where the city is the showcase and we have exhibits in fashion shops or in um, galleries and different places. So we, we, we actually had a, dis, uh, a, a dispersed uh, festival to start with. And that's been really helpful during the pandemic. We, we, did, we did restrict the number of people that went into each, each venue. But because we're only getting 200 cases a day into Tokyo, we felt it was okay to go forward with it. But it did, it did make us push much more strongly in the digital realm. So there, there's been live Facebooks, there's been hybrid events. We've done a Pachacha event. We had Hong Kong, Stockholm, Guangzhou involved, and then three other presenters. We did it in a bathhouse, in fact. Um, so, but we wouldn't have done that before and everybody would have to come to Tokyo. But this time we've actually gone uh, out in this, this hybrid form. And instead of just having 100,000 visitors, we've had over a million visitors to the uh, platform to, to experience designer. And I think that's a really interesting thing. We don't have to fly to Milan. We don't have to fly to St Stockholm for these big furniture fairs. We can be a really integral part of it, again, cutting our carbon. Of course you can go, but I think uh, there's a way to be more inclusive by being more hybrid. Um, and again, this, there's, a, there's a positive side to that. There's a fact that we're all talking today because of, of, of 
COVID, we'd have been, you know, if, if, if I was in London, I would have been gone to the Aspen Institute and gone to, an, you know, an official event. So um, I think it's, a, it's really fantastic how it's broadened um, uh, the, access, the accessibility again, going back to, to, to Jacob's point um, there. So, uh, yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think as well, yeah, sort of this, I think kind of holding onto this kind of idea of decentralization, the idea that, and actually another one of our, uh, one of our Q&A questions is um, from Polly Richards. I have become obsessed with my neighborhood in Bristol since the first lockdown. I would love to think I could live my life fully in it, but I have to travel to shop and travel a long distance to work. Do you think we can ever live well and properly in smaller neighborhoods? Um, so I guess this is kind of getting into the nitty gritty of like, how realistic is that? Is it for us to kind of have this balance between localism, but also still kind of being able to live our lives, you know, fully? Yeah, well, I think we're, we're I mean, we're certainly more hyper-local now, but we're also hyper-global at the same time because of uh, Zoom and, and pl- pl- platforms like this. And I think mm. because we've been uh, forced in, in, into that, it's creating these really interesting situations. So I think okay. yes is the answer to that. And we're, we're, what we're seeing is, is, is a major shift in Japan to, to, to really local communities. There was a lot of, there's a lot of communities beginning to die because of especially the farming communities. Um, and we're seeing people now buying up farms and making staycation places there. Again, we're really busy in our hotel work, um, not hotels in central locations, but hotels which are spread around Japan. Um, and there's a major shift there. Uh, one of our clients has over 50 hotels in Japan. All of their rural hotels are booked every single day through to mid-January. Uh, um, ones in town, not so much. But so we're seeing this shift out of the centers. Um, and that's because of uh, c- companies being more fle- fle- flexible and allowing p- people uh, to have workations or staycations and th- things mm. like that. There's also a major campaign, the Japanese government are giving 30% off all hotels to get p- people. It's called the, uh, the go-to campaign. And that's been extremely successful. But there is, a, as I say, a g- general shift. Let's, uh, let's decentralize. Mm. And what role do it, I mean, does the sharing economy kind of play in this? I mean, obviously, you know, we, we all know about sort of sharing apps like Uber or sort of Zipcar, Airbnb, but there's also like a whole world of apps now that sort of, you know, allow you to, you know, share garden tools or like a Hoover with your neighbor, sort of the idea that you might be able to like live in smaller properties and kind of live in density and have, you know, more at your disposal. Do you think that this will continue to kind of shape our cities, um, make this sort of hyper-localization possible? Yeah, I can just say a small thing about that. I, I think apps, absolutely. I think there's obviously a scare with the, the notion of, of sh- sharing and handing some, something to somebody else at the moment. Um, <laughs> but I think you'll see a resurgence of WeWork, Airbnb, things like that as people adjust to the new now. Um, and as, as offices downsize, we, we know lawyers and tech companies that are questioning whether they need all this space. Um, and, and several people are, are cut, cut, cutting their space in half right now. Yeah, um, And so that will allow WeWork and places like that uh, to become more important because those will be the, the central hub. So that notion of, of sharing physical space to reduce the, the amount that we build uh, is going to be real, 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 really important and goes back to many of Maria's points, I think. Mm. Amy, could I add something to that? 
yeah. Absolutely, Peter. Yeah. Please go ahead. Mark, Mark, I think, like us all, is, is wonderfully optimistic. And I'll, I'll say that Mark is visionary. Hopefully we all are. We're in this time of what we could perceive as extraordinary calamity and crisis. And typically what happens during that is that you get a whole series of first responders, you know, a, a firefighter or, you know, medical professional that has to put triage on things. Architects are first adapters. And what we're starting to talk about here is, is the vision to see ahead here. So to make an adjustment, you know, perhaps there's going to be a lot of, um, commercial office space in downtown Tokyo or downtown Chicago in a major metropolis. Perhaps that's an opportunity to, to start dealing with a house, housing crisis. Architects are on the front, you know, the front of that wedge in seeing that future. And I think this is a really amazing opportunity. And you know, construction is 13% um, of the world's GDP. Uh, we're making a big adjustment in that. It's a really great opportunity to, to resolve things like the housing crisis, to create opportunities for work-life balance. You know, imagine that you spend three days in the office that Mark is designing on the outside of Tokyo and two days at home sat with your kid who's, who's at school that day. You know, there's a whole new logistic at, at play here. And, and architects are really well-placed to, to navigate that. And, and I think this is, this is where the future is going. Seeing architects as first adapters and confidants to this process to anticipate the crises and, and head it off at the pass. Mm -hmm. um, a question from, from uh, Annette Fisher here, which is, do the panel think the pandemic and the universal adoption of remote working will have a more positive impact on the retention of women in the practice of architecture, which I think is interesting as it's sort of tying back to this where we were, where we were kind of starting here is uh, promoting more equality. Who would like to answer this one? I, I just want to pick up on something that we've kind of been talking around a bit, but like, um, and I think Armstrong mentioned this when you were speaking earlier, but I, I, there, there are positives to be gleaned from the pandemic, but I think it is important to say that, like, um, and, and in some ways this is a positive, even though it's like a, a terrible positive, but like it's, it's really shown the failings of our current system um, in terms of the way that our current systems have had to, like, uh, you know, are being fought, pushed to breaking point in, in lots and lots of ways and that, that, that we've had to think about like how, how can we actually tackle the things that we really need to tackle in terms of, you know, employment and access to basic resources and basic human rights in a lot of cases has become very, very difficult and we didn't have the systems in place. So we had to like quickly make up these like quite crude systems and it's, it's really exposed a lot of the systemic inequities that this, you know, our, our, our broader kind of social and economic systems have in place. And I, you know, that has really, really hurt a lot of people and has caused a lot of suffering, but it is good that we are seeing that these systems do need to change. Um, and so, you know, I think partly because of all of that hurt and suffering, it's, it's our responsibility to make sure that we do really recognize that and make those changes and sort of put us in a, in a better place 
um, for, um, as Peter's saying, you know, heading off at the pass further calamities, and whether that is other pandemics, uh, which, you know, could happen, um, <laughs> other pandemics, um, you know, runaway climate change, further extreme weather events, the kind of calamity we're going to see because of biodiversity breakdown and things like that. We, we need to start putting in place now. It's really clear that we need to put in place the system so that we can, as communities, like help each other and be resilient. And I think, you know, some of that you mentioned the sharing economy, um, Amy, but, you know, some of the like in- incredible like work that mutual aid groups have done, for example, and just like facilitating neighbours helping each other is has been really incredible. And it's, it's, it's you know, that it's it's a, there are two sides to that coin because on the one hand they are they are incredible because there are failings elsewhere in the system that they have had to respond to but at the same time I think we are starting to look more directly at the reasons that we work and the reasons that we try to earn money like what stuff is actually important to us it's time with our families and it's like being able to go for a walk and it's being able to have a view of a tree and you know like to be able to play music together it's like we're, we're starting to see what's actually important to us and I hope that as we rebuild these systems that we um we do that in a way that we're able to have these things directly rather than necessarily, oh, well, what I need to do is work harder and harder and harder and harder and earn more and more and more money and get more and more and more crap. And then hopefully that's going to make me happy when actually you could avoid all of those like really toxic processes in so many ways Mm. and go directly to the stuff that makes us happy because we've experienced the loss of a lot of that and we are able to see that much more directly. So it's like, it's a very difficult thing to talk about, but um, the, the, the kind of the negatives and positives of this pandemic and what it's taught us are um yeah we, we really need to it's like i feel like it's really our responsibility to make sure that we we take heed of that and that us as architects who are able to solve problems spatially think about that as we kind of shape the the built environment and natural environment going forward mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so uh we're kind of it's the idea that we move towards a more resilient form of architecture as opposed to a more reactive form of architecture it's a tough question but what are the sort of first steps for us being able to do that? Um, well, I mean, I think one of the key things is, and I would say this, but like not staying within architecture. Like we need to understand more about uh, ecological systems. We need to understand more about what landscape architects do and what economists do and what you know, insurers do and, and work more, like collaborate more across the different players that affect our environment because the, the, boundaries between different disciplines and the silos that we work in structure our thoughts and structure our ability to solve problems according to the kind of prevailing ideology so if we want to try and solve these big problems and like tackle these things directly as we're talking about we need to talk about them directly and therefore we need to not worry about you know what it says your scope is but actually bring in like different people with different ideas and then we can like shake everything up (laughs) (laughs) Armstrong, uh, did you want to add something there? I, I, no, I, think you... she, I think she pretty much answered what, she, what I was going to say something along <laughs> similar lines as well. So that was, that was good. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Let's shake it up together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted uh, to just talk about what, what Peter was talking about. I think you were talking about being first adapters. We, we worked with Toyoito on this project uh, after the earthquake and the major tsunami, which 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 impacted a million buildings in Japan. I think people don't realize that it was 200 kilometers of coast. Um, and there, what, what we were talking about as being, was being the sort of the last, res- the architects are the last responders. The first responders go in and do what need, do all the rescue and recovery. 
Uh, but we've been working there for 10 years now. We're still very, very much involved there um, about how we rebuild after the tsunami. And uh, the Japanese government was very good and built, built uh, within three months um, uh, acres and acres of temporary homes that all looked exactly the same. They were ready in storage for these disasters. Um, but there was no soul, there was no life there. And Toyoito, Toy, Toy who we, we worked with before when we first went to Japan, uh, wanted to bring some, some uh, life and some humanity to these, these areas. Kids are going to be growing up in these temp temporary houses. And so we, we ran this project called Home for All, and we've built um, over 100 community hubs, all by interesting young and older and Pritzker Prize winning ar ar architects. Um, and it's really developed into something really amazing. And as, as Peter said right at the beginning, you go into these buildings and the kids think, wow, what's this? People are thinking about us and people are a part of that. And so building this community uh, was, was really, really important. Um, and, and the architect's role there, uh, we had to work with all sorts of different people, whether it was the local planners, um, the um, emergency teams. Um, it was a huge uh, sort of team F effort where the architect is really, you know, that, um, that first adapter, as Peter said, but also the last responder. Mm -hmm. I think that's it's really part of what we do, right? I mean, we, we go in and we make a difference. Mm. And we make a difference by injecting some soul into that community where perhaps you're living in a, you know, as we affectionately refer to them as a, a FEMA tent or a, a FEMA container here in the mm. United States. And likewise, we have to make these same injections in, into our profession too, and to answer the question before about more equity and more parity for, for women in architecture, more parity um, you know, for, for, for black architects in America. We need to help people that have been marginalized in, in our profession by, by injecting those opportunities. You know, I, as a person of privilege, need to make those opportunities available when I can do that. Um, this is another mm. design problem, and, and uh, you know I, I'm mm. listening, and I'm, I'm I'm trying to make a difference through what I'm doing. Um, we all need to lift, you know, f follow that follow that lead. I think. Mm. And do you think? I mean, it, it sort of strikes me as we're sort of talking about the idea of kind of making a difference in these kinds of projects. That sort of so many architects, you know, the the, the sort of the model of how architects work is, um, you know, you have a client who pays for you to do things. So in most cases, your client is someone who, you know, has money, um, the ability to kind of put together a project, but, and then also sort of there are architects working reactive against, you know, disasters, mm -hmm. trying to kind of provide aid where it's possible. But, um, you know, does, is there sort of more opportunity for sort of more architects to be working more with nonprofits, with communities. I mean, I feel like that's where this kind of this kind of line is going. Like maybe that's the way forward. Is it's not sort of all about either working for someone for profit or working for for aid. That there's sort of this maybe this kind of middle ground, which maybe is reflected a little bit in the kind of work that you do, Peter. Oh, we we've got to speak up. Uh, Maria just listed, you know, the, the the myriad of collaborators that participate in, in a project, and we can go so deeply with that. Um, you know, we, we need to get our social services involved in a project. We need to predict and do analytics on, on, on what their future looks like. Um, to tell stories about the difference a project makes. Um, you know, it, it's, it's not about design awards. It's about 
the resilient impact that you can have on a mm. community. It, it's about how you mm. can promote um, minority-owned businesses and, and give everybody um, an equal opportunity to participate in that. And it's mm. back to that thought about getting everybody invested in their community collectively. Mm. Architects also, are really superb conveners of those conversations. Yeah. And we're great at illustrating how to do that, right? But it's, but it's also getting architects to understand that, to understand how powerful they are or, or how great they are at these. I think most people sometimes, you know, architects can get stuck. I mean, it's interesting we've not talked about postmodernism or high tech or any of those things that you may think about. What's the future of architecture? We're talking about much, much big, big, bigger things and, and, and the impact that architects can have. And I think we have to, to make architects realise that uh, the responsibility they have and uh, the impact they can have is really, really huge. It's not just about that handrail detail. Yeah, there's a kind of a there's a great question coming in here that uh, I know we're going to get running low on time, but it seems sort of very um, topical as to what we're discussing right now. It says uh, from Richard Payne, are you finding resistance to change from manager level decision makers um, and above? And to what extent is this a hindrance to the necessary changes required? Um, can I answer that? Sounds strong. Yeah. I think it was interesting. I was trying to, it's very, it's very nice listening to all this, um, all of me listening to as well, but it was, there's, there's been, um, we talked about working from home. I mean, we know that working from home has always been there, for example. People have always worked from home, but now with this pandemic, it's been accelerated. And we, this idea about being a community has been accelerated as well. And I think that um, as architects, we, 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 we're trying to improve the quality of, of, of all our lives really, not just ourselves personally, but lives in general. So I think um, when you talk, when we talk about when the, the question that you've mentioned that what I always try and say as an architect is first of all, bring the human experience into the conversation. And I think once you do that, the conversation changes very quickly. And I think without human experience, it can, it can go in all kinds of directions. But once you bring that in, we spoke about sociologists being brought in, landscape architects, but you just bring, bring that human angle into it. And it's very difficult for any other human being not to be able to have that conversation with you. If I bring other metrics into it, yes, it can become a little bit um, constrained. But actually, at the end of the day, what we're dealing with here is actually solving problems with people that at, literally at, at the core, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now we're getting very close to the end of our talk. So I feel like before we sort of call it a day, um, I mean, it's been an incredibly, incredibly uh, full discussion covering quite a broad range of topics. So I think it'd be interesting if all of the speakers would maybe just give me a sort of a, a sort of a brief summing up of what they think is the future of architecture. Peter, I'm going to come to you first. I'm really optimistic about it. I'll just reinforce this idea about being first adapters, but also been citizen architects and getting really involved at a grassroots level in our communities. And, and help everybody in those communities to speak up. And we bring our expertise as, as visionaries and then visioners of the future. Um, and we need to bring everybody along with that, particularly those who've been marginalized systemically, historically. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- this is the key to our future and it's an amazing opportunity. Fantastic. Mark, do you wanna go next? Yeah, I mean, I think there's some real key key words uh, that came out, this notion of uh, welcome for all. We talk about our projects called Home for All, but but somebody mentioned, uh, I've got some notes circled here. 
And I think one of the key words that Maria spoke about was being humble. And I think that's a real key thing that architects need to be humble. Uh, and through that, they can begin to understand all sides of the conversation. And I think that's really key. And that will help the profession and the world be more resilient. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Maria, do you want to go next? Um, sure, yeah, okay. So what am I going to say? I think that, um, I think it's about understanding our role as like facilitators rather than imposers of a particular design or order or structure or something, but that we need to through like, um, like as Armstrong was just saying about through like kind of finding new ways to communicate and really human ways and really humble ways of communicating with people, but also with like more, more broadly with, you know, um, our, our ecosystems and, and understanding how we, fit in and finding that like positive relationship between humans and the rest of nature um, and sort of really yeah enmeshing our environments into that um, into that ecosystem and for us as architects to facilitate that enmeshment which is not a word but I'm going to say it anyway um, <laughs> then I think that you know our roles as architects is going to be incredibly rich and rewarding and wonderful um, and within planetary limits. <laughs> Fantastic. Armstrong, the future of architecture? Yes, um, I'm going to refer to the United Nations Sustainability Development Goals program, which I really believe in, and because I think it was signed up by all the countries in the world a few years ago. We're meant to be achieving it in the next few years. I really believe that that, that piece of legislation answers a lot of the things we're talking about today. And if, if we as architects could be champions of what is written in those 17 goals. I think the future is bright. <laughs> That's the perfect place to, to end on. <laughs> I'd like to say uh, thank you so much to Aspen UK Initiative 2 for inviting us to have this conversation and to sort of share it with an audience. And thank you so much to all my speakers, to Peter Exley, Maria Smith, thank Armstrong Yakabu, and Mark Dyson. Thank you so much. And if I, on behalf of the Aspen Institute in the UK, can add my thanks to the most extraordinary conversation. I feel that I've had this amazing <laughs> into your worlds for the last hour. It's been so amazingly good to hear that you believe um, that it's a very exciting time to be architects, that you're helping us mere mortals change the way we look at beauty and desirability. And, and like Mark, I made lots of notes of, of the words you've been using because I don't think I'd ever put them in your industry before so noise and social benefit and talked about embodying biodiversity designing for all longevity and there's also this idea of hyper local and hyper global environments i've learned an unbelievable about the last hour i'm going to go away and think about them so but amy as well as armstrong mark maria and peter thank you so much for your your expertise and your enthusiasm and your time it's been a delight thank you thank you thank you bye-bye that's it for now Thank you so much for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at UK underscore Aspen. And to stay up to date with our work and future discussions, check out our website at aspenuk.org. This is a Right Angles production. You can find out more by visiting rightangles.global.